I am thankful to be here um, and preach for you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, thank you for this time that we can hear your word preached. Help us to listen attentively, and may we see the beauty of Christ. May his name be honored and glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've all probably heard the phrase, if your friend jumped off a bridge, would you? And obviously, every mom who asks this question expects the answer to be, no, I wouldn't jump off the bridge. You know, it typically comes after you've, you've done something really dumb, and they ask you this, and they expect you to answer no. But I can honestly say yes to that question, because I've done it. A few years ago, I, I interned in Ecuador uh, for about a month, and one Friday we got the day off, and we just wanted to go do something fun. And so there's probably about 10 of us, about half girls, half guys. The girls wanted to go to a spa and get a massage. And a couple of the guys, they said, yeah, I want to go do that. But my friend Chris and I, we looked at each other and we were like, we don't want to go to a spa. We want to go do something manly, you know? And so Chris looks at me and says, let's go jump off a bridge. And so I'm like, all right, let's go. And so we, we drive to this bridge, we get there, and I look off the edge, and it is tall. I mean, it's probably three, four hundred feet. There's a river down below. It's, it's rocky in there. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to jump off this bridge now. <laughs> we watch a couple of people jump, and it is terrifying. And so my friend talks to the guy. He knows Spanish, and he asks him, how much is it going to cost? He says, $20. And so in Ecuador, you can kind of barter the costs, and Chris talks him down. He gets him down to $17. And so Chris jumps off the bridge. I see him jump, and I'm thinking, there is no way I'm going to do this. And uh, the way that this this bridge worked, it wasn't a bungee jump. The bridge was, you know, right here, and the rope was attached on this side, and it came below and attached to you right here in a harness. And so you would kind of jump out, and it would catch you, and you would swing. And then they would kind of swing you down to the ground, and you'd walk back up to the bridge. And so Chris did that. He comes back up, and he says, Grant, you have to jump. The guy told me that the $17 is only if we both jump. And so now I'm thinking, well, great. Now I've got to jump off this bridge to save my friend $3. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, fine, I will jump. So I get harnessed up, I get on the edge, I jump off. It is the most terrifying thing I've ever done. And I walk back up, and I look at Chris, and he says, you know, I lied. It was going to be $17 either way. <laughs> and so I, I look back at that, and it, it's a funny story. Um, but I also think about how dumb I was. I mean, I'm in the middle of Ecuador. There's probably no safety regulations on this bridge. They, they don't check the rope or anything like that. And so, yeah, it, it cost me $17. I paid them to jump off a bridge. But... What could it have cost me? It could have cost me my life, really. Actually, a, a couple years ago, someone did jump off that bridge, and the rope did snap. It really could have cost me by, my life. Would it have been worth it? Today, I wonder how many of you are like me. Not about jumping off a bridge, but, but your spiritual lives. I wonder how many of you decided to follow Jesus, but it was just a really quick decision. Maybe an emotional decision. 
but you never really sat down and thought about what it's going to cost to follow Jesus. Our text today should cause us to sit down and evaluate and to think about the costs of following Jesus, and it should be a helpful indicator on the genuineness of our faith. So if you would, go ahead and turn with me to Luke 14, 25 through 35. Luke 14, 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Just to give you a little bit of background information on the book of Luke, uh, Luke wasn't one of the disciples of Jesus. He was probably, he was a follower of Paul. He actually, he followed Paul and he wrote down the, the book of Acts and he wrote this as well. And so around this time, it's around 62 AD, I think a lot of people were, were writing different accounts of the life of Jesus. Some of them were good. We have the other accounts, but some of them were not so good. And so Luke wanted to write down for himself the true account of the life of Jesus. And so it's, he's writing this to uh, a man named Theophilus, as we see in the first chapter. Um, and the book starts off, it's a lot of, it starts off with a long story of the account of Jesus' birth, and it starts off with uh, Jesus' ministry in Galilee, and then around chapter 9, he sets his face towards Jerusalem. And that's when he's, he's heading towards Jerusalem to die, to die for the sins of the world. So now, where we're at, we're kind of in the middle of that. So the structure of this passage, it's fairly easy. In verse 25, Luke gives us kind of the context of the scene. Then he provides two conditions for discipleship in verses 26 and 27. And then he goes on this, this aside with two illustrations in verses 28 through 32. Um, and his final condition is, is verse 33. So the main idea of this text and of this sermon is this, if you're taking notes. Following Jesus will cost you everything. 
but it is worth it. Following Jesus will cost you everything, but it is worth it. And there are three main points. Number one, following Jesus will cost you your family. This is verse 26. Number two, following Jesus will cost you your life. Verse 27. And number three, following Jesus will cost you your possessions. Verse 33. So the main meat of this passage comes in verses 26 to 33, but I do want to make a quick note about, it says, great crowds accompanied him. Now throughout Luke, Jesus is teaching various different times in various many ways, and he's teaching to, to different people, sometimes just his disciples, sometimes he's seeking, teaching primarily to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and then sometimes he's preaching to great crowds. And I want you to know that these great crowds, not all of them were true followers of Jesus. You know, this came after Jesus. He's already fed the 5,000. He's healed many people. And he's taught uh, in various different ways. So these people, they're just following Jesus, just maybe to get something for themselves or to kind of hear this new teaching, but they're not necessarily true followers of Jesus. And in the same way, we live in a culture where many people claim to be Christians but they don't really follow Christ. They might bear the name of Christ, but they don't resemble Christ at all. If this is you this morning, then Jesus is speaking to you. And he's asking you to consider the cost. What will it cost to follow Jesus? Now the first condition, following Jesus will cost you your family. He starts off with a pretty harsh condition. In verse 26, he says, anyone who comes to him or anyone who, who says, I want to follow Christ, they must hate his own father and mother and wife and children. And if they don't do this, then they can't be a disciple of Christ. So what does Jesus mean by this? He can't really be telling us to hate our father and mother, our families. No, he's not, he's not telling us that. We know this because in Matthew, the book of Matthew, Jesus actually kind of, we have the same passage in that book. He doesn't say the word hate. He says, if you love father or mother or brother or sister more than me, then you cannot be my disciple. There's a different emphasis in this book. And another reason that we know that, that he's not actually telling us to hate our family is because this is, this is really a common expression in their culture, just to love something less. So Jesus is calling us to love our families less than him. And I, I really think that Luke is using this word hate to emphasize how much more we should love Jesus than our families. If we could put these two on a scale, if we could measure love, the amount that we love Jesus should break the scale compared to how much we love our families. So the question in this, in this passage for us is simple. Do you love Jesus abundantly more than your family? And how can you tell what you love more? An easy question to tell what we truly love is this. What do you do with your time? Do you wake up in the morning and you, you carve out time to get into the Word of God and, and to pray? Do you think throughout your day on the things that are good 
and true and beautiful? Do you pray throughout your day in dependence on the Lord? Or thank God for providing you with literally everything that you could ever need? Or do you wake up just in time to get the kids to school or to get to work on time without really giving God a second thought? Or do you prioritize different things in your life? Maybe it's your, your children's events or, or the football game on Saturday or NFL on Sunday. Do you prioritize those things over, over the things of God? If you do, then it's possible that's, that you don't love God more than your family. As followers of Christ, we, don't, we must love Jesus more than our families, and that will be displayed in our interactions with our families. Men and women, if you love your spouse, or if you love Jesus more than your spouse, then you'll prioritize the Word of God within your marriage. Not only should we you know, study the Word of God in our own time, but, but the, the true disciple of Jesus, the one who loves Jesus more than his wife, will prioritize the Word of God in his marriage and read the Word of God with his spouse. Or even with your children. The true disciple of Jesus the one who loves Jesus more than his children will, will read the word of God with his children. Now, I'm not asking you to, to plan an hour-long family worship service or anything like that, but, but consider at the, the dinner table. You know, that's something that you do fairly often. You might sit together as a family. Instead of asking your kids the same old questions and getting the same old responses, you know, how was your day? It was good. What did you learn today? Nothing. You know the same old questions and same old responses that you get. Instead of doing that, consider bringing your Bible to the table and reading just just a chapter and praying with them and letting your children ask you questions. Or consider when you drive your kids to school or when you drive uh, with your spouse to work. Instead of just kind of listening to music and, and doing the same old routine, consider praying during that time. In the mornings when you drive your kids to work or to school, consider using that time to actually teach your kids how to pray and really model that for them. Learn to make the routine tasks of your day fruitful for both you and your family. I know that that can sound like a lot. You know, I'm, I'm talking about studying your Bible and praying and doing those things consistently. But if, you, if you're not doing those right now, I would really encourage you to start with one thing. You know, if you're not consistently reading your Bible, commit to reading your Bible for 10 minutes a day. Read it, and then maybe write a couple things that you, that you see in the text. And maybe pray for that. The Christian life, it's not one of, of leaps and bounds. The Christian life is just one step at a time. Day by day by day. And when you do that over the course of your life in one year, in five years and ten years, you'll look back and you'll see just how far the Lord has brought you just by taking one step at a time. Friends, the call to love Jesus more than your family is hard. But I want you to know that family is actually the best way that you can love your family. The best way to love your parents, the best way to love your spouse or your children is to point them to the God who loves them and died for them and resurrected for them. Point them to the God who loves them far more than you do.
Condition number two. To follow Jesus, you must love Jesus more than your life. So what does this look like for us? At this time, at the, these Christians, they were, they were enduring persecutions. They were uh, you know, being killed for their faith. Stuff that we're not really experiencing here. So what does it look like for us today to love Jesus more than our life? Well, as our world is kind of turning more towards secularism, they're beginning, beginning to accept things, uh, beginning to accept sin and things that God has called sin as good. We can think specifically of the, the LGBT movement that's going on. You know, if we don't agree with them and accept their, their position on this, then, then we're called hateful and, and bigots. For us, to love Jesus more than our life is to hold firm to his word. Amen. To love his word. And to not waver from it, but to hold firm and believe it. Another way that we can practically love God more than our life is thinking about the workplace. When you go to work, do you, do you typically go to work and you're thinking just of making money? Making money to provide for the family? Making money uh, for, for your own possessions or things like that? But the true follower of Christ, when they go to work, they don't just see that as a place to make money. They see that as a place to glorify God. They see that as a place where they are surrounded by people who do not know Jesus, who they can share the gospel with. A way that you can love Jesus more than your life is to go to your workplace and to be sensitive of the people around you who are lost, who are dying, and who right now do not have a relationship with the Lord and are under his judgment. Be sensitive to those people and be faithful in proclaiming the gospel boldly to them. The Lord has entrusted you with his gospel, not so that you can go there and just earn money. He's entrusted you with the gospel so that you can go to your workplace, so you can go to the gym, so that you can go to school, wherever it might be, so that you can go there and proclaim the gospel boldly, no matter what will happen. You might lose your friends. You might, you might not get that promotion that you're hoping for. It's possible, as, as our culture is shifting even more towards secularism, that you could lose your job for being a Christian. But the cost of following Jesus is to love him more in your life. Will you do that? Are you doing that? Because if not, if you are not willing to hold firm to the word of God and follow Jesus in obedience, if you are not willing to do that, then you cannot be his disciple. He is clear. So then we get to this, this kind of aside that he goes on, and he's speaking of, of a man who's considering building a tower. And he says if he doesn't have the money and he starts building, he gets a certain ways and then, and then he can't build anymore. He's just laid a foundation, and then all these people see him and they begin to mock him. And then the other, the other illustration, which is very similar, is a king who has to, 
for us to sit down and think about whether or not with 10,000 people he is able to send those people against 20,000 people and win the war. He has to sit down and think about it, whether or not he can win the war. So what these, what these two illustrations are kind of telling us is that, is that those two decisions, to, to build a tower or to, to send an army out against a war, they're big decisions. They're decisions that, that these people should really sit down and think about. They should sit down and think about the cost, what it will cost them to do it and to finish it. And in the same way, Jesus is using these illustrations to show us that the cost of following Jesus is great. It's one that, that we shouldn't make hastily. We shouldn't make just, just off of kind of an emotional response. It's one that we should really sit down and think about and consider the cost. The cost is that we, we must love our, we must love Jesus more than our family. We must love Jesus more than our life. We must love Jesus more than everything. No matter what it's going to cost us. Whether our, our family might turn against us, our family might be angry with us, whether we lose a job, whether something happens, we must commit to loving Jesus more than everything. That's the cost. We should sit down and think about it, and think about whether or not we can, we can do that. So the third condition that Jesus gives is that we must love him more than our possessions. He says, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So we've got to love Jesus more than all of stuff, all of our things. You know, in America, we, we don't really tend to think about this because we love the story of, of you know, rags to riches, the American dream. That's what, it, that's what it's all about. You know? We see success as just accumulating more and more wealth or, or rising through the ranks. That's what success is here. But that's, that's not what Jesus is calling us to do. Jesus is calling us to love him more than any of that stuff. It doesn't matter what we have. It doesn't matter uh, how much money we make or anything like that. We must love Jesus more than all of our possessions. And as we read earlier in Philippians, to know Christ is far better than anything else. To know Christ, we count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. So what are some practical ways that we can, we can really think about whether or not we love Jesus more than our possessions? Well, one thing, let's think about our bank account. What are we spending our money on? Are we typically, are we giving generously to the church? Are we giving generously towards missions? Or are we just kind of buying the next big thing? The next big thing to, to try and satisfy ourselves. What are you spending your money on? Are you honoring the Lord with your money? Or what about just our, our, our material possessions? I think about the cell phone. You know, what am, I, what am I doing with this? How much time am I spending on this? For me, so often it is so easy 
to get to the end of my day after studying, after working, after whatever it is, and just sit down and just scroll mindlessly through Facebook or Instagram or whatever it might be. When I, I really could be using that time for something more beneficial, maybe reading his word or, or something like that. What am I consistently doing with my time? We must love Jesus more than all of our things. We must love him more than, than our phones, more than our televisions, more than anything like that. The Lord has given us all of these good gifts. They're not bad things. This cell phone is not a bad thing. Money is not a bad thing. We see in 1 Timothy 6 that it is the love of money that is the root of all evil. Not having it, simply having it. That's, that's the Lord's blessings in our lives. But so often, we can begin worshiping the gifts that God gives rather than God himself. Are you worshiping the gifts that God has given you rather than, than God himself? I would challenge you, if, if you have a cell phone, this is, or an iPhone, this is really easy. They have a, a thing where you can go into the settings and see how much time you're spending on your phone. Or think about how much time you're watching television. Or think about you know, where your money is going. And when you evaluate those things, you can really see what you're worshiping. Are you worshiping the gifts that God is giving you? Or are you worshiping God himself? If we're worshiping God, then we're going to use the gifts that God has given us to know him more and to glorify him more. So Jesus kind of ends with a really, really harsh warning. In 34 and 35, he says, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So he tags us along the end to, to really show you you know, he's saying salt is good, but, but once it's lost its saltiness, it's, it's of no use. What he's trying to tell us is that the people who, who start to follow Jesus, people who start to follow Jesus but don't actually obey him, who don't really love Jesus more than their family, more than their life, more than their possessions, those people who start to follow Jesus, maybe they, they claim to be a Christian, maybe they're in church every Sunday, but they don't actually obey him. These people are not really Christians. It says that they are of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. These people who claim the name of Christ, but don't actually follow him, he says, are of no use to the kingdom of God. So we have to ask the question now. This cost is so great. But why? Why would, we, why would we give up all of our things? Why would we give up our family? Why would we give up our life? The cost is so great. Why would we follow Jesus? And the answer is that he is worthy. Jesus is worthy. Amen. He is worthy of our praise, of our honor, of our lives, of our obedience. Why is he worthy? Well, I want you to know up front, we should not be able to follow him at all. We have sinned. We have sinned against 
the holy God of the universe, the almighty God who is perfect and without any sin. We've rebelled against him. Ephesians 2 says that we are completely dead in our sin. We are following after the course of this world, following after our fleshly desires. We've rebelled against God, and we, because of that, deserve his wrath and his judgment. But God is merciful. He sent his only son, Jesus, to live on this earth the life that we could never live, the life that we should have lived from the beginning, but we fell, we sinned. And Jesus lived perfectly and died the death that we deserved on the cross. And on the cross, he took upon himself all of God's wrath that was meant for me. All of God's wrath that was meant for you. Jesus took that upon himself on the cross, and he died. God became man, and God died for us. And three days later, he did not stay dead. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering Satan, conquering sin, and conquering our great enemy, death. He defeated death in his resurrection, so that if we believe in him, if we place our faith in him, then we now have life in Christ. Jesus is worthy. He is worthy of our obedience. He is worthy of our lives. He is worthy of us loving him more than our family, our life, and our possessions. He is worthy. We have forgiveness in him. We have been made children of God in him. We have been redeemed. We have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit in Christ. We've been we have been given an inheritance in Christ. All of that is tied to the person of Christ so that if we know him, then we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as Ephesians says. And we have an inheritance with the Father and will be with him for all eternity in heaven, forever, in the fullness of God's glory, all because of Christ. Amen. He is worthy. Now follow him. Follow him because he is worthy. If you are a Christian, if you've been a Christian for a long time, then I hope that this is encouraging to you. I hope that this is a reminder of what, what the Christian life is supposed to look like. And I hope it, it refreshes you and gives you a new zeal to follow after Christ wholeheartedly. If you've been here, if you're here, you realize through reading this text that, that maybe you haven't really been following Jesus. Maybe you've been sitting in these pews for a long time. Maybe you've claimed to be a Christian for a long time. But you haven't really obeyed him. That's okay. But I want to encourage you now. Jesus is calling you. The invitation is open. Believe in him. Place your faith in him and turn away from your sin. Hate your sin and turn to Christ today. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. And we are thankful for Christ and his death and his resurrection that we might live
Help us now to live obediently to your word and follow after Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.